The aftermath of the New Year's Day earthquake that struck Japan's western coast that has left 50 people dead, the magnitude of 7.6, which centered in the Ishikawa uh, side of the island, which resulted in widespread devastation. This morning we are joined on the program by Professor Emeritus Raymond, who is the chair of the School of Geosciences at WITS. Prof, thank you very much for your time and welcome to Radio Islam International. Thank you. It's very good to be with you. How do we make sense of this all? I mean, we know that Japan is prone to earthquakes. It is something that they had experienced in the past. But this time around, what has happened? Well, as you say, Japan is prone to earthquakes, and this is just part of a natural phenomena um, that as the Earth, uh, uh, I suppose, as a, what we call our tectonic plates move on the surface of the Earth, from time to time there will be energy released in, in, in earthquakes. Most of the time it's in small earthquakes, but every now and again it will be in a big and devastating earthquake like this. So it's a natural phenomenon, a bit like you know, we can observe the clouds moving, the rain falling, the winds blowing. Much the same type of process is happening deep within the Earth as the Earth is losing its heat and the rock that forms the mantle of the Earth is slowly moving around. It is driving our continents um, on the surface of the Earth, giving rise to these sorts of events. Mm. And Japan is uh, you know, around the Pacific Ocean, and that's an area that's known as the Pacific Ring of Fire because it is prone to earthquakes and volcanoes, and that's all part of this phenomenon. It's just... The bigger events happen at intervals of maybe decades or even centuries, and so uh, it's quite a long time compared to human life. Mm-hmm. So even in this area of Japan, they've known earthquakes in the past, but get a, a, a large, really damaging earthquake this probably hasn't happened in, in, in a human lifetime before for someone living in that area. Mm. You mentioned an interesting thing that uh, you they have... You know, as you study the formation of the cloud and so forth, and you can tell what is happening. Uh, when we talk about Japan, they have a sophisticated early warning system for earthquakes. Uh, how effective is the system and how does it work? Right now, I've, I've, I, I, I currently work with Japanese scientists. About, uh, we have Japanese visitors here uh, researching earthquakes in our deep mines, which are like earthquake laboratories. And I've been there. And if you go to the Japan Meteorological um, Organization, that's where they do the countrywide monitoring. They have this big map on the, on, the, on the wall and they have a room full of analysts who continually uh, analyze the earthquakes that come in and you see the light lighting up. There will be a new earthquake that has been located every few minutes. Often these are below the level of shaking that people can sense, but of course our instruments can, can do so. But now it's very important to say uh, what you mean by an early warning system. Mm. We cannot predict in future when there's going to be, you know, accurately within minutes or even hours, when exactly when and where a large earthquake will be. But what is meant by early warning is saying once an earthquake has happened, it takes uh, these earthquake waves travel very quickly, maybe three or four kilometers um, per second. But even so, once an earthquake has happened, and if you're monitoring it, and you've got artificial intelligence in place that can very quickly determine the size of the earthquake, we can give them warnings, or the, the Japanese system can give warnings to uh, the towns that are perhaps a few tens of kilometers away that an earthquake, strong earthquake shaking is coming. And so that means that what we mean by earthquake early warning it doesn't mean predicting that an earthquake is going to come, it means that the wave is on its way. Mm-hmm. And even if you've got 10 or 20 seconds, that allows people to take uh, precautionary actions. For example, at a, a, a fire station, the doors will open 
So they, the trucks can, they, ambulances can, can leave and the, the doors won't be jammed. If you know, in Japan, they've got these high-speed trains. It will allow those trains to slow down. And so there are many ways in which they can use those early warnings of perhaps a few tens of seconds to make things safer for people and, and take precautions. Now, Prof, initially they had signaled the warning for a tsunami and then it was downscaled and downgraded. How do you classify a tsunami and how does this all tie in? Right. Now, what causes a tsunami is that is when you have a displacement of the sea floor, when the sea floor either goes up or down due to the action of, the, of, 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 of a fault. And so tsunami waves are quite different to the normal waves which are driven by winds and the storms that affect the surface of the, of the ocean. And so, uh, and so a normal wave that you down at the end, of course, it crashes on the beach, it runs up and then retreats. And the next wave comes in seven or ten seconds later and repeats that action. But with a tsunami, you'll get a sudden perhaps withdrawal of the wave, but that will last for a few tens of seconds. And then the, the water level will rise and will just keep rising. It won't just come in and go out. And so it will flood uh, large distances inland if the topography is flat. And so it's very important to give people a chance to flee uh, to higher ground. And in places like Japan, you'll find along the coast they'll have uh, tsunami escape routes marked. It's the same in Chile, other countries that are prone to this, that show where you can get from, perhaps if you're close to the beach or alongside a river, an estuary that's going in land, where you can flee to be a few meters above, you could say, sea level. And so you will not be uh, captured or swamped by the wave. And so that's why it's very important to give people a chance to escape. It's very hard to predict within those few seconds or tens of seconds exactly how big the tsunami wave will be because you're not quite sure what motion the earthquake caused on the sea floor. So it's always better to be safe than, than sorry. So the practice is that there's a, a large earthquake that's offshore that could cause a displacement in the sea when there are towns within but several tens of kilometers away, even hundreds of kilometers away, is to issue this alarm so people can move to higher levels and escape the effects of any tsunami that might be caused. After a few minutes or two, of course, you see whether or not what the real effect is, and then you can remove your warning after that. Hmm. Also, looking at... uh you know, the aftershocks. I mean, you have the epicenter and then the aftershocks. How many days after could you could one still expect to feel uh, the aftershocks? With a large earthquake like this, and again, it's a, a completely normal phenomenon that after a, a large main shock, there will be aftershocks as the earth settles down again. They'll go on for weeks, days, and months. And even small events will, will continue for, for years afterwards. Wow. But the, the chances of a, another large event, so if you've got something like the 97.5 or 7.6, the normal statistical rule is that your biggest aftershock will be about one magnitude unit smaller. And so it will be perhaps a magnitude 6.5. I see already they've had, had a, you know, a 6.2 take in place. And so events of this size could continue perhaps even for, for weeks afterwards. It's unpredictable exactly when they will appear, but just from past experience, where there's a, a, quite a, a strong statistical law that shows the fall off in aftershock activity with time. A magnitude 6.2 event, of course, can still cause significant damage to structures, and especially structures that have been weakened by the, the main shock. And of course, they're terrifying for people who just experience the main shock and are perhaps sheltering out of doors. And so, yeah, aftershocks are something that need to be taken taken seriously. What about neighboring countries, Prof? 
Yes, well, in the, generally you find your intense damage is within maybe 50 or 100 kilometers of the, um, uh, of the epicenter. And in this case, that will only encompass Japan. This event, as you have already said, happened on the west coast of Japan. So you've got your, uh, the, the country just across the sea is Korea and China. If there had been a tsunami created, that, of course, can spread over hundreds of kilometers and could have impacted those, those countries. Um, China and Korea, and particularly China, have got areas within their territory where you have earthquakes of their own. So this earthquake uh, would have been felt, uh, uh, this is hundreds of kilometers away as a, as a shaking, but it's, it's not likely that any event will be triggered by this earthquake in any, in any other country. And the world has also become a global village and there's a lot of ongoing research taking place and there have been natural disasters occurring. We've seen in Turkey, we've seen in Morocco, uh, Libya and other places of the world. Uh, how has the research been changing? And you also earlier spoke about AI coming into play. How is the research developing over time? Yes, I mean, what we find is that we've got increasingly sophisticated e- equipment, uh, monitoring equipment that can look, uh, and so we're having many, many sensors in place that can measure, and also that the data can be processed a lot in, in a lot more detail. And the kind of work, I mean, I'll just mention the kind of work that we are collaborating on with our Japanese colleagues is to look into the actual, you could say, the physics of the earth, earthquake rupture. Why do earthquakes start and why do they stop when this rock tears apart? And so we are doing uh, tests where we are, in fact, working uh, on a mine called Mo Kutsung Mine near Clarksdorp, where an earthquake known as, we call it here, the Orkney earthquake happened in 2014. And we mm. got funding together to actually drill using the deep mine uh, working to stage our drilling and drill into the, the rupture plane, an instrument and do recording. And we're looking at what, uh, at these kind of issues. How strong is that shaking? How does the rock break apart? And we've shipped some of our rock the specimens we've got to Japan for very sophisticated equipment to look at the behavior of rock under high stresses at high slip rates and to understand how it changes because you find that when you have rock moving against rock there's a lot of friction created you can get flash heating of up to 1200 degrees celsius which is beyond the melting point of rock so you find that normally a rock like we get forming our hills around Johannesburg is made of quartzite but when it gets flash heated, the quartz in fact melts and turns into a gel. And then the friction on that rock surface um, disappears. It becomes very low and that enables the rupture to happen very quickly. And so it's that type of research that we uh, are engaged with together with our Japanese uh, colleagues to understand how we can deal with uh, it's a natural earthquakes like this one in Japan better, but also the earthquakes that we get that we generate by our deep mining, where we mine in a depth of three or even now very close to four kilometers below the surface. So we are trying to understand the whole physics of the earthquake nucleation process and the rupture process. Mind-boggling indeed. Prof, thank you very much for your time this morning. Much appreciated on Radio Islam International. Good. Thank you so much, Abid. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.